Glad you're here with us on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and stretching every dollar. Coming up in just a few minutes, your dollars being run off with by somebody in the travel business when they haven't treated you right. I'm going to tell you what you need to know in today's Clark Rageous moment. And yet later, do you know that even people who are CPAs, who study finance, who work on Wall Street, are clueless about personal finance? What should we be doing about that? I'll share my thoughts. So I want to let you know that there is a device that I want you to have in your vehicle that is very common overseas and very rare in the United States. Do you know what it is? It's a dash cam. What a dash cam does, and you can buy these as cheap as $15 on sale, is it does a continuous loop recording of what happens while you're behind the wheel of a car. When you start up your vehicle, dash cam comes live, and it continually uh, is shooting video Depending on the dash cam from the very cheap ones, it'll be okay video to the ones that are really expensive, like 60 or $70, shoot unbelievably clear, high-def video, recording a continuous loop on an SD card. And in the event that you are in an accident, there's a, an ugly situation that while you're in your vehicle, you're a witness to a crime. Uh, there's any of a number of circumstances, a road rage situation, where you're able to capture the video. But there's a use that's become very valuable in areas of the country where there are these auto accident fraud rings, which has been a big problem in Florida for as long as I can remember and happens in different places in the country where people either stage accidents or create them so they can sue you. Often they are micro-targeting people who are driving nicer, newer vehicles, and they will create a scenario causing an accident. One scenario is a light turns green. Vehicle in front of you goes. And then in the middle of the intersection, they suddenly stop and you run into the back of them. How do you prove that they actually stopped causing that accident? You know, generally, the vehicle that runs into another vehicle automatically is the one cited at fault. Well, if you had a dash cam, you'd be able to prove right away that the reason that accident happened is for no reason other than trying to cause an accident, that vehicle stopped. Now, this is something that is unfortunate that goes on with the insurance scams. And there's the newest version of the Tesla, the Model 3, has built into it a video recording system. And sure enough, there was a situation where a driver was driving along, somebody came around him and then jammed on his brakes so he could cause an accident. The Tesla ran in the back of this vehicle. 
But because of the video that the car had captured, well, it eliminated the problem. Then another incident recently, who knew people would take this chance? People staging accidents on bikes. Apparently you hit somebody on a bike. It could be a pretty big claim you're going to have to pay as an insured of that vehicle. Well, there are people who are purposely having an accident with you on a bike. Who would ever think of something like that? I mean, because you could be trying to cause a wreck and you could get killed. But anyway, the dash cam video showed in this thing, you may have read about this, that the person in the bike purposely caused the accident so they could file a claim and get money for injuries. But the dash cam showed it wasn't the driver who did anything wrong, it was the bicyclist. Now also you're going to have the other thing happen. You're going to be in a wreck and your video is the one that captured you were fully at fault. But how often is it that somebody claims that you were the responsible party when it was them or an officer an officer comes to investigate can't figure out who is at fault and you both get tickets so having a dash cam is great stuff i strongly recommend one dave is with us on the clark howard show hi dave hi clark how are you great thank you dave you have First, a, a thank, twist of a I want to thank your, yes? your staff. What a wonderful group of people, Kim and your staff, and helping me arrange this call. Well, thank you. It's great to have you here, Dave. And you have a Social Security question nobody's ever asked me. Okay. Um, I am 69 years old. My daughter is going to begin college in the fall. Um, she applied to several colleges. Uh, the college to which uh, she would, the college she would like to attend has basically given her a good amount of money, so it's a little bit less than the state college. Oh, isn't that great? So you have that a brainiac great. for a daughter. <laughs> yeah, thank God she takes after her mother. <laughs> <laughs> um, the tuition is uh, 53 six. After the grants, it's down to 16, plus the room board would bring us up to 29.1. She's going to take the fifty. Don't forget that one. Don't forget that yeah. one. <laughs> Not just 29,000. <laughs> She's going to take out the federal direct unsubsidized loan. We don't qualify for the subsidized. And that would leave us with about 23.6. Now, I don't want to burden her um, with a lot of money to pay back down the road. So I was thinking about collecting my Social Security now. I plan to work for four more years until she's out of college. And um, my cousin suggested uh, taking my Social Security, possibly going back retroactively six months and putting uh, a chunk of this money toward her tuition. And I wanted to see what your opinion is. Well, you know, you're right at the point where you're going to be at maximum Social Security benefit when you turn right. 70 anyway. So there's a little bit of a haircut taking it at 69 instead of 70. You get 8% more if you wait till your 70th birthday. But yes. uh, you're going to have to take it, and you've waited long enough to get the maximum benefit. It will uh, Working's not really going to hurt you. 
and for that. So, yeah, take the money. But okay. the retroactive, I'm not so sure about because um, once you get the most in a check you can the rest of your life possible. And you can just use that money towards her schooling. That's what I was thinking of doing. If I go retroactive, because my birthday is in March, um, I would go to 2600 But if I wait a little while longer, the uh, the amount for this year jumps up to 2809 So I was thinking of waiting and then just going back the three months. Yeah, I think that's great. Good. Yeah, I think that's fine. And uh, you and I are in the same exact boat. Because when my son goes to college, I will be 69. Okay. So Well, good luck with your son in college, too. Thank you very much. And uh, congratulations for having that smart, smart, hardworking daughter. Thank you so much, Clark. Okay. Bye. How about that? I'm not alone. I'm not the only person who's going to be near 70 when his child goes off to college. Adam is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Adam. Hi, Clark. I will also be near 70 when my child goes off to college, so I understand completely where you're at. What are all of us doing? What are we thinking? (laughs) We decided to start over is what basically happened for us. Okay. (laughs) Hey, Clark, I appreciate you taking my call. Sure. For sure today. Um, I'm kind of got a dilemma. Um, my parents are now, well, they're now in their 70s, uh, um, and basically both on Social Security, uh, very low Social Security because they took it when they were 62, I believe, at that point. Um, they have a house in Florida, and the house has about 13000 remaining on the mortgage. Uh, my mom's got a $35,000 equity line. And I think combined, they're about 15000 in credit card debt at this point. Um, the good thing is the house has a decent value. It's about 180000 now with the market in the Central Florida area. Uh, but with their low Social Security incomes at this point, they really, A, don't have enough cash coming in. They're, not, they're just paying uh, interest only on the equity line. So they're, they're oh. hardly making any moves on anything at this point. Um, you know... My wife and I are in a job transition right now, so you know we are we did take Clarkonomics, so we are pretty decent off right now. Uh, but with the job transition, you know, I was considering: do I buy the house? Do I rent it back to them? I really don't want them doing a reverse mortgage, of course. Um, so we're kind of in this situation where I, now we're, we're trying to figure out what to do. The worst part is the house needs about forty thousand dollars of work in it. Oh, boy. Um, and that's, so mom's response to me lately is, you know, I'm just going to let the house fall around me, which, of course, I don't want that to happen either, um, you know, because I am an only child and will inherit the house at some point in time. So, you know, was just looking to see if you had any thoughts on the subject. Well, this point. is, a, I'm going to bring up a lifestyle question, and this is a tough one. But right. It sounds to me that they would be better off selling the house for at market value and renting moving forward rather than trying to stay in that house. If they are if they're deficit spending now, the house has enormous repairs it needs to have done to it. Those are only going to increase the more you avoid doing those, the more those increase in cost. 
uh, that that doesn't sound like a great option for them to stay in that house. Now, if you were not telling me about your job transition, the question I would always ask is, uh, do you have siblings? Do you want to go in together? Does one of you want to buy the house and rent it back to the parents and then be in a position to maintain it for them and things? Um, I just don't like the idea of them staying in the house. The reverse mortgage is not going to generate a large amount of cash even if they did that. Because I was thinking about the numbers you gave. Market value 180, they're only going to lend so much against it. There's already a home equity line that has to be extinguished and a small remaining mortgage balance. So I'm not sure that's going to generate an appreciable amount of cash each month. And then you got all the upfront costs with a reverse mortgage. So they're in a bind. They're in a pickle here. They they are. And, you know, Clark, they're paying about 700 a month total for everything for the house. And, of course, the first response is, if I sell the house, I'm not going to get 180 for it in the current situation it's in. And then in Florida, rental rates are through the roof, not, a, you know, not in, not barring actually costs or uh, sale prices for homes. So that's where we keep going back to, okay, if we sell it, how much cash will they actually have left to, for the, you know, for the rest of their life at that point? It's not going to be a ton of money. It may make so. sense then uh, to kick the can down the road just enough till you feel like you're in a uh, stable work situation again. And buy it off of them. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And that's what we thought about as well. It's just, I don't know how far kicking that can down the road is, you know, is going to go at the moment. And do you have any siblings? I am an only child. You're the, you are it. Oh, that, you know, my, my late father would say that wouldn't make any difference anyway, because he'd say 10 kids can't take care of one parent. So (laughs) you get to do it yourself. So I, I would I buy as I would buy as much time as you can, and then when your finances permit, just purchase it. Yeah, that makes sense. Because that's what we're thinking. Because that uh, seems to make by far the most sense hearing the scenario, and you know you'll probably set family rate kind of rent so they can survive in it, and that's probably the right thing to do. Today's Clark Regis moment is to protect your wallet. You know, if you traveled recently over the July 4th holiday week or you're still out there for July 4th and you want to make sure that your rights are protected in the event that you've had a big delay, a flight cancellation, something like that, traveling by air, most people don't know that there's compensation potentially available to you. We don't have anything like the European system and you should know if you're ever flying to or from Europe and you have a flight problem, the airline owes you massive compensation under European law. Even if it was only going here to Europe or Europe to here, they still owe you that massive compensation. Even if you fly on American, United, or Delta, they still have to pay it to you. You just got to know to ask. For domestic flights, depends on the circumstance, the severity, particularly if you have any status in a frequent flyer program with an airline, you need to make sure you get the money that would make you whole or the miles or points that would treat you right. And certain circumstances airlines can weasel their way out of. 
Others, though, they want to make accommodations. And sometimes if you fly a lot on an airline, I'll have a delay that didn't really bother me that much, and I'll get a thing in the mail offering me a couple hundred dollars towards future travel on the airline just to keep a loyal customer loyal. So know that if you don't ask, you don't get. Something very common now is people will call up and say, hey, I had this problem on a flight, and they'll then offer you 5,000 points, or they'll offer you a voucher of some amount for future travel. But most people just go away quietly. The more you ask, the more they'll give you. Got a question for you. What do your kids know about money? It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where that's what we're about, learning ways to save more and spend less, and don't let anyone ever rip you off. Clark.com is our main website, clarkdeals.com. That's where we got all the bargains for you. So I think about people I've talked to over the years who are high up in a corporation, uh, often on the finance side, and will ask me a question that shows that in spite of the very heavy responsibilities they have in a corporation and that they're counted on as the numbers person, when it comes to their own households and their own finances, well, a lot of times they're clueless because they were never taught that. It's never talked about at home, never talked about at school. They, they were always looking at big picture finance stuff. But never things that go on just day to day, handling money, handling life in the four walls of their own life and household. So this, is, this isn't just something that I'm aware of. This is something that people have become much more aware of all over the country. And one of the reasons is that we're at a time where there are a lot of people who are having a real struggle because of the amount of debts they're carrying of various types. People are looking back thinking, what could we have done differently? And the problem is that we as individuals face so many more financial decisions than we used to have to make. Pensions have pretty much disappeared. And so many things that we do now, instead of having one government-dictated monopoly for it, we now have free market choice. And so a lot of those choices overwhelm us, and we don't know where to start, what frame of reference to have, and what to do. And that's why nearly half the states in the country require, in high school, some form of personal finance training or education. And it's something I think will become pretty much universal across, if not all the 50 states, most of them, even in some colleges now. That's true. I, I gave a speech to a personal finance program that a college had a while back. And it was interesting, the vocabulary the students had, the questions they were asking, showed that, that they were getting some of the concepts. But so often we rely on the schools to do the teaching. And I would like to encourage you if you are the parent of young children coming up, that you think about having continuing conversations with your kids 
not to obsess about money, but to understand it, to explain different phases of personal finance. Because your kids aren't going to learn it by osmosis. And a lot of times it's not going to be taught in a school in a way that they really absorb. So if it's an ongoing thing, you can do it. I've talked in the past about how I've done this with my kids age appropriate from when they were very early in elementary school going forward. I started when they were very young teaching them how to comparison shop in a store, how to use unit pricing to understand what things cost, teach them about saving money from middle school, and in various stages, making sure as best I can that they have an understanding about how to protect themselves in the financial system, in the banking world. And my kids have all worked at this point, and they all have Roth IRAs. And I make sure they understand what those investments are that I have them in. Because they earn the money, but I picked the investments and then taught them what I picked. I mean, they're in an unusual position, basically having me there to guide them. But in your own household, there's so much you can teach. And there's so much they need to know so that they don't live an existence of handling money ad hoc, that they understand how to manage and the overriding concept to teach, that through their lifetime, through their lifetime, they live on less than what they make. Most important thing to reduce financial problems and anxiety with money is from the get-go to always set aside at least a dime of every dollar they make. Bob's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Bob. Oh, hi, Clark. Good afternoon to you. Great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we need your advice. Um, We've uh, got our cash out of a real estate investment that we've been in for about eight or nine years, and we have about $250,000 now that we need to Congratulations. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, we need some your advice as to how to reinvest it. Uh, we're in our uh, mid to late 60s, and uh, we don't have much debt. Just a part of our house uh, mortgage is about all we have. So we're trying to plan ahead and see what we should do with these funds. Can you give us some ideas? And then the second question part of this is just to have some funds available. We were looking at uh, getting a good high yield on online uh, high yield savings from some online banks and uh, like to see if you had any ideas what comments would you have about that idea yeah so you would not want to put all quarter million in a single institution no because the fdic insurance caps at a quarter million and you would get back that but you might lose any accumulated interest over time if the bank you put the money in failed but you could open two online accounts and there are a lot of them paying in the twos for an interest rate, and that would be a great thing just to park the money. But in order to answer your question, what are you, are, are both of you still working, or are either of you retired, or what's the story with that? Mm, we're uh, working in our own little business, and we're going to be retiring in the next uh, oh, two years, year and a half, two years. All right. And what will you do to live on two years from now? What funds will you 
drawn. Is this part of that, or is this? Yeah, well, we've, we've been saving towards the retirement funding, so this will be part of that, yeah. Okay, so that affects the answer, because you need to have a combination of money invested to deal with much later in retirement. You know, are you both in really good health? Uh, so far, knock on wood, yes. So I don't know your genetics, but, you know, if you've made it into your mid-60s, odds are pretty strong one or both of you will make it to your mid-80s or beyond. That sounds fine to me. <laughs> so, yeah, so you got a lot of years to pay for when you're no longer working. So yeah. you need to think not just about stashing money in a savings account, you need to think about what you're going to do with inflation over the next 15, 20 years that would erode your money. At the same time, uh, invest in a mix of things that would give you returns beyond inflation and have a more modest risk level. Okay, yes. And so I'd say what I'd like you to do is stash the quarter million in online bank accounts. Get your okay. two plus percent. Okay. As a parking space. And then I'd love it if you went to meet with a fee-only financial planner mm -hmm. and go over your whole picture, what your goals are, what it costs you to live, what debts you have, your intention to retire in the next two years, and work with a fee-only planner to come up with a plan for your future and how you're going to get there. Okay. And with fee only, you got uh, two different strategies, and you and your wife will have to decide which fits you best. One, okay. you hire a fee only planner who's just like a coach and looks at what you got and gives you recommendations what you should do with it. Okay. And that you pay an hourly fee for and just pay somebody to advise you. And you go see them every so often for a checkup, like having an annual physical. The other model is where you pay somebody to manage your money for you. And that is available for as little as uh, one-third of 1% 1 per year to the mo more common 1% per year. Okay. Which do you think fits your lifestyle more? I think a professional manager. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, the lowest cost management available is from Vanguard, because it's a co-op. They don't try to make a living or make any money from doing what they call their personal advisory service. And so I think it's always good to talk to Vanguard to see how you feel about going in their personal advisory service, because then most of your money is still working for you, very little being paid for somebody to advise you. Right. But for the standard industry kind of thing, which is paying somebody 1% of the money you have to manage it for you, I recommend that you go to NAPFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, mm -hmm. NAPFA.org. Okay. And you'll be able to put in your zip code information, and they'll be able to give you a list of people that are local to you. You go interview several of them, first by phone, then a few in-person meetings with at least three different firms or individuals. Figure out who's 
personality seems to fit yours the best whose guidance do you like the best and then you're able to make a decision and then i would compare talking with somebody face to face versus the vanguard method which costs basically one third the cost and see what sounds best and sounds right for you gary is with us on the clark howard show hi gary hi clark uh, long-time listener, glad to finally talk with you. Well, great Today, to have sir. you here, Gary. So I have a deceptively simple question that should be pretty basic for most adults. However, nobody's ever actually taught me about this. And mind you, I'm a little bit older than when this first happened, but now, you know, I'd like to maybe get some closure. So the situation, wrap your ears around this one, is when I was younger, I was trying to establish my credit. I got a couple um, high-interest credit cards with a very low limit, something around you know, three to $400 each. Uh, and, you know, 15 years later, I still have them, and they're still reporting, and I've never missed a payment. Um, and I'm wondering, when is it appropriate to cancel those cards? The givens are that I have other cards that have 30, 40, 50K on them, and I'm doing fine financially. Uh, and now, you mean, are you mean in charges on them, or you mean credit limit? Credit limit, sir. Oh, you were scaring me there. Ah, no. <laughs> the way you said no. that, Goodness. I had 30000 out on this one and fifty on that one and forty on that one. Okay, so good. Oh, good, good, good. That's okay. my house with that, right? Right. So the cards you have, these two that helped you build credit, do either of them have an annual fee? They both do. One is about 60 a year and the other one's about $36 a year, which I pay monthly just so there's a transaction. Okay, dump them. Roger that. And so you can, when you call to dump them, they may in turn offer you a no annual fee card. And if okay. they don't, and I don't want just no annual fee for one year, I mean, they give you no annual fee it, right. you know, going forward. And if they don't want to do that, just close it. If you've got the amount of credit limit you have and you've got the history and all that, you're fine to dump these starter cards with micro limits. So for the for the general population out there, what is the right rule of thumb to know when it's time to dump them? Well, the annual fee is the key to your question. If these had no annual fee, I'd say just leave them be. But because they have an annual fee, they need to skedaddle out of your life. <laughs> that's stuff. thank you. That's really the dividing line. And and the other key information you gave me is because you've got all these other cards, you got these really big limits available on those, so you're, uh, it's irrelevant in your credit mix and in the amount of credit you're using that you have these two older, very small limit cards, and that's why you can throw them overboard and not worry about it. James joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, James. Hey, Clark. Thanks for taking my call. Absolutely, James. You have a question for me about something that is a newfangled kind of cross between a bank and a credit union. Fill me in. Yeah, so recently I was just browsing the web, and I received an advertisement about this this bank online that said its members would own part of the bank, I guess kind of like a credit union. So I was just curious, uh, like, what's the deal? What's up with that? So there's an old type of banking that used to be very prominent in parts of the Northeast called a mutual bank. 
And it was exactly how I described up front when I was introducing you, kind of a cross between a bank and a credit union. And so it is kind of designed like a credit union to be by and for the benefit of you as a member, but then also there's a portion that is for the investors. So it's a mix. So it's not quite either. And in this case, go ahead and name them because they've come up before on our show. So go ahead and name them. uh, I believe they're called Good Money. Yeah, Good Money. And they're not actually a bank. They are. Oh, really? Yeah, they have FDIC insurance that that they run through an actual real bank. But it's kind of like, I guess you'd call it a service that's not a bank, but has the protections of a bank. Kind of like what T-Mobile has done with T-Mobile Money, where T-Mobile customers can have a checking account that uh, pays them 4% interest and no fees, and they run the the money through an FDIC-insured bank. That's kind of what good money does, and these days they're paying 2%, right? 2% on checking accounts? Yeah, so it is a good deal, and... The reason it's appealed to people is they have this social component where the money, in part, goes to charitable works. Oh, I see. So it's designed to be something that you feel more like an owner than just a customer, and you earn much better than you would from a traditional bank, and then they're doing the good works. At least that's so you, all the promise. Would you say so? Would you say um, that they are they're a good option for an online bank then to you know get that two percent on savings? I can't say that because I don't know how people's experience has been with them. So James, that's the hard part. Until we have enough experience to know that they've been really serving their customers well. I can't really speak to that. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.